Hello. All right. I think we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, some people might come in a little late, but it's okay. Uh, let's open with a word of prayer before we get started tonight. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather together each Sunday, and we thank you that as an extension we could get together tonight and learn about a topic that is important, that concerns your word, and the Bible that, that you have so graciously given to us. I pray that tonight would be edifying for, for everyone here and for those who, who listen later online. Uh, would you help me to teach with clarity? Would the words that I say be glorifying to you, Father? Would we walk away tonight with an increased awe of, uh, of who you are and what you've done for us through Christ and through revealing yourself to us? I pray that we would be confident in the scripture that we have, that, that we do in fact have an accurate copy of your word for us today that we can rely on and that can be authoritative for us. It's in the name of your son we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, some of you guys were not here last week, so I thought I would do a little bit of a review um, just of some things as we hop into this week. So what questions are we going to be asking today? How did we get the New Testament? What was the process of formation for the New Testament? And how, how did we come to have the New Testament we have today? Do we have the right books in our New Testament? What about the Apocrypha? Should we have them in our Bibles? And that word, some of you guys might not know what it means, but we're going to talk about that in just a sec. After so many years, can we trust that the Greek manuscripts we have today are reliable? Could the text have been corrupted and altered? So that's going to be the basis of what we're talking about today. We'll talk about quite a bit of stuff. I, I hope that I can make it through all the content. Um, and again, I wanted to define terms, some of the terms we were using last week for some of those, some of you who weren't here. And just as a reminder, um, when I use the term text and canon, kind of as a, a subtitle to the class, I'm referring to the general topic and biblical studies having to do with the biblical languages, the formation of the Bible, translation, and the preservation of manuscripts and all that. Um, when I say text, I'm simply referring to the text itself of Scripture, the words that form sentences, paragraph, books, uh, etc. And then the term canon refers to the list of books which are considered God's word and therefore authoritative for life and uh, for faith and conduct. And so the canon of Scripture is is the list of books that belong in our Bibles, the um, kind of the boundaries that we have on on our Scripture. With that, um, I, oh, I forgot to mention this last week, just an important note. Much of this content is adapted um, with permission from my professor, Dr. Ray Lubeck. I, I owe him so much just for all that he's taught me and the influence he's had. Um, a lot of this is my own that I've put together, but, but the general structure I'm following um, is, is his. And so uh, I don't know that I have to worry about this in this context, but I do ask that the notes and PowerPoints that I'm sending out and putting online aren't reproduced. Um, Long story short, he, he teaches a Bible study methods class, and he hands out the notes to everyone, and he had a former student go to a publisher with his notes and try and publish his notes under his name. Um, 
and the publisher realized it came to him and he ended up publishing it in a book form. But he just asks that, um, that we respect the, the content that he's put a lot of work into. So um, I just ask that you don't reproduce it. You can use it on your own. No, that's great. Uh, so with that, what are the Apocrypha? Um, I don't know how many of you might have backgrounds in, in growing up Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, um, so you would know what these are, but the Apocrypha are essentially a collection of popular Jewish literature that was mostly written during the time between the Old and New Testaments. We call that the intertestamental period. And so uh, there's a list of books, there's about 15 of them, which we consider uh, the Apocrypha. I'm not going to read them all, but those are, those are there. Um, and, and actually, the Roman Catholics, they consider all of those to be Scripture. And then the Eastern Orthodox Church, there's three more which they consider to be Scripture. Um, they include 3rd and 4th Maccabees and then an extra psalm. Um, and so, so, yeah, these are similar to some of the books we have in our Bible uh, Ecclesiasticus or Syriac is a lot like the book of Pro- Proverbs. Same with the Wisdom of Solomon. Um, first and Second Esdras are, are very similar to Ezra and Nehemiah. Maccabees and Second Maccabees are uh, narrative, hi- historical narrative, and so it tells the history of the Jews. So that's similar to some of the the stuff we have in our Bibles. Um, so it's it's similar in some ways, um, but as we'll see. I don't think we should consider them scripture, and um, our tradition does not hold that they are scripture. What about the pseudepigrapha? This is a, another word that you might hear thrown, on, thrown around. Um, essentially, they're, they're the same types of books as the Apocrypha. They're the same types of writings, but these are, are books that are not considered scripture by anyone. Catholics and Eastern Orthodox or Protestants, we don't consider any of these books to be scripture. Um, some of these books include Jubilees, First and Second Enoch, Second and Third Baruch, the Martyrdom of Isaiah. Uh, again, popular Jewish works from the time between the uh, in, in between the the two testaments um, that were circulated, and as we'll see, these were were really just works written by Jews, about Jews, and they function kind of like any other book. Um, You can use it for edification, you can use it for learning, but the Jews did not consider them scripture, and that's going to lead into, um, I have here, the case for the Apocrypha, 10 rejections, and these are going to be 10 reasons why I believe we should not consider these to be scripture. The first one being the Jews themselves rejected it, and so the Jews have never regarded these as Scripture. Last week, if you were here with us, we looked at a bunch of Jewish scholars and believers and lists of Scripture that they had put together, and none of them included any of the Apocrypha. Um, instead, they, they simply understood that these were works by Jews, about Jews, and um, they used them for study. So, uh, in, my, in my room at my house, I have a, a mini library that I'm kind of starting. My parents are getting frustrated. I'm running out of space for my books. Um, I have dozens of books that, that I hope speak truth about God. They say things that are true about the Bible, about Christian life, about, um, about God himself, and I actually have on my shelf a, a mini collection of Bibles, which I have a lot of Bibles as well. Um, and I have some of them on the same shelf as these books with my commentaries and whatnot. But there's a difference. When I open up 
a commentary on the text, or I open up a book by um, a pastor or a scholar, and it's saying stuff that's true about God, and I, and I recognize that, and I grow from it. And then there's a difference when I open up my Bible, and I'm reading the Word of God, and I know that difference. Both, these, both types of books are helpful. Obviously, the Bible's on a higher level, but I, but I know that I can include, I can have these books around on my, on my, um, my bedside table. I have my Bible and the current book I'm reading right next to each other but I know the difference between them. And, and that's kind of what the, what the Jews had here, and we will see that it was actually early Gentile Christian misunderstanding that led to the, the idea that these books might be Scripture. And so uh, we have Gentiles who don't grow up in any of these Jewish customs. They see these books, and they're kind of held together, passed around with Scripture, and then they think, oh, they must all be the Word of God, and they start including them together, when really this is not what the Jews had thought at all. Uh, Moving on, the Dead Sea Scrolls. We talked about this last week, this major discovery um, in these these caves by the Dead Sea in Israel. There were over 900 manuscripts found. There were 225 uh, manuscripts from the Hebrew Bible and a host of manuscripts from um, the community itself, talking about community guidelines, commentaries, all these things. And out of all these manuscripts, only three of them had anything from the Apocrypha. And so... um, Obviously, to this group who lived here, they had manuscripts from every single book of the Bible except Esther, and they only have three manuscripts of the Apocrypha. Obviously, to them, they didn't hold these books as Scripture, or they probably would have had a lot more of them, and they might have thought they were useful, but obviously not that useful because they only had a few, a few copies of them. And so there's evidence there that shows us um, they, they understood that this was not on the same level as Scripture. So three, the Septuagint. Um, We talked about the Septuagint last week. It was an early Jewish translation of the Hebrew Bible into Greek, and it became really important for the early church. Uh, It's often claimed that the Septuagint includes the Apocrypha, but this is really anachronistic. Um, By that I mean it it belongs to a time period other than that that... um, we're kind of saying it does so. If you're watching a movie about World War II and they're portraying the, the time period of World War II and then a general pulls out an iPhone, that's anachronistic because that wasn't around. So um, the Septuagint was translated about 250 years before the time of Christ, and the Apocrypha were written 100 years or so before the time of Christ. And so to say that the Apocrypha were included in the Septuagint, it doesn't make sense because the Septuagint was originally translated before the Apocrypha were even written, so it would not have originally included it. Um, The reason people bring up this argument is because the oldest manuscripts that we have of this translation are from 600 years later, and these do include some of these books, and so people say, oh, they're together. We should have them in our Bibles, when really um, they were added later and they were included later, um, and especially added by these Gentile Christians who, who didn't know what they were doing. Uh, The next one, so we talked about the fact that we don't have any of the autographs of the Bible, and by autographs I mean the original texts written by the author, and so we don't have any of those for the Greek or uh, Hebrew Bibles, but we have original language manuscripts, so we know the, the Bible for the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and we have lots of manuscripts in Hebrew, and same thing, 
obviously with Greek for the New Testament, as we'll talk about later today. With the Apocrypha, we don't know what language it was originally written in. We don't have any of these autographs. Um, we have a lot of copies of Greek manuscripts, but we don't know, was it originally written in Greek? Was it translated into Greek? Was it written in Aramaic or Hebrew? Um, and so there, there's a lot of stuff we don't know, and that's because we just don't have as many manuscripts of them, again, because uh, they really weren't considered on the same level as Scripture, and so they didn't go through all the care that, that was put into preserving the, the, the manuscripts of Scripture itself. So five, uh, internal claims. There's not a single claim within the Apocrypha in any of the books to be Scripture, and there's, there's not even any implication that this truly is the Word of God. The, the case is totally different, though, when we look at the Old and New Testaments, and we'll, we'll look at some of that today with the New Testament. When you read the Old and New Testaments, you see, oh, this is the Word of God, and there's claims within it to being the very words of God. However, you don't see any of this with the Apocrypha. Next, we have this guy named Origen. Um, you might remember from last week, he was an early Christian scholar who set out to produce this massive work called the Hexapla. It was this six-column Bible. He wrote out the entire Hebrew Bible six times in a bunch of different translations, and he didn't include any of the Apocrypha along with it. You would think for a guy who was going to write out the entire Hebrew Bible by hand six times, He'd want to be clear on which books were Scripture, which books he was copying. and He didn't include any of the Apocrypha, so I think that's also a good sign to us that, that we shouldn't. Next, Jerome. He was a Christian scholar from the 4th century. He was the one commissioned by the Roman Catholic Church to translate the Bible from Hebrew and Greek into Latin, uh, which is the, the translation called the Vulgate. He refused to translate the Apocrypha because he believed they weren't Scripture. The, the Catholic Church was pressuring him to do so, but he said, no, I'm not going to do it. He finally said, someone else can do it, but it won't be me. Um, and so this, again, we have an early Christian scholar who says, no, these books are, are, can be helpful. We can read them, but they're not Scripture. We shouldn't include them in our Bibles. Uh, next, we have the Council of Trent. This was, was a major Roman Catholic council in 1546, and this was when they officially recognized the, the canonical status of the Apocrypha books. So they, they recognize these books as Scripture. And so they actually call them, um, if you're talking to a Catholic, they're going to call them the deuterocanonical books. Deutero meaning second, so it's second canon. These are kind of the second canon of books. And um, so you have 1,500 years of church history, and this was the first time where they officially said, okay, these are Scripture. In a large part, this was in response to the Protestant Reformation, which is going on at this time, and there, there's this push in the Protestant Reformation, sola scriptura, we're gonna, our doctrine is going to be based on Scripture and Scripture alone, not on the tradition of the church. And the Catholic Church had several doctrines, um, purgatory, for example, where they couldn't support it from the, the 66 books that Protestants considered Scripture. They could only support it from the Apocrypha, and so they went out to say, this is Scripture, so they could support their doctrines. This is uh, these last two example, uh, re rejections are, are really the, the most important. The New Testament is huge because, as we saw last week, it, it relies heavily on the Hebrew Bible, yet no author of the New Testament ever quotes to or alludes to any of the books from the Apocrypha. If these books were considered Scripture, you would assume that the writers would reference them just as much as the others, but they don't. They don't reference them, um, them at all, and this is, this is huge in and talking about why we should not 
accept these. Um, just a side note, if you're uh, an astute reader of Scripture, you might bring up the argument, well, what about the book of Jude? Isn't there some, some references to some extra-canonical works? And you'd be right. The book of Jude alludes to um, a pseudepigraphal work. So the pseudepigraphal, those are the books that no one considered Scripture. It alludes to a work um, called First Enoch and then also the Assumption of Moses and Jude, the author, does not consider these Scripture. He doesn't introduce them as one would customarily introduce Scripture. He just quotes them as popular literature at the time to make his point. Um, it's a bit of a, a side topic, but none of the, neither of these books were ever considered Scripture by anyone. So we shouldn't say, oh, we should add these to our Bibles now because Jude quoted them. No, that's not, that's not what he would have done, um, and that's what, not what anyone thinks we, we should have done. Lastly, we have Jesus himself. Jesus anchors his identity in the story of the Hebrew Bible, and he makes no reference to the Apocrypha. So you would think that if he was going to anchor his identity in the books of Scripture, and these books were supposed to be Scripture, he would reference them. He would quote from them. He would talk about them. He would mention them, yet he doesn't. Um, and in fact, he also implies closure to the Tanakh. That's that, the, um, the, the, the title for the three-part structure of the Old Testament that we went through last week. So he implies that the, the Old Testament has been closed, that there's no more scripture being added. And so this shows that Jesus himself did not consider the apocryphal books to be scripture. All right, so I've given you 10 reasons, uh, which are not exhaustive, but they're the reasons that I believe show that we can clearly and confidently say that these books should not be included in the Christian canon. We should not count them as scripture. So what do we do with them? I believe there still are some uses for these books. Uh, for one, as I mentioned, just like any of the other books that I have and that I read alongside my Bible, these books can speak truth about God. They can say things that are true about, uh, about Him, him and, and they can direct us in our Christian lives as long as they align with Scripture. So um, if I'm reading uh, another book by by someone today, they're, they're going to say a lot of good things, hopefully, that I, I can grow from, that I can learn from. But if they say something and I'm like, oh, that doesn't, that doesn't line up with Scripture, then ultimately this book submits to the Bible because the Bible is going to be the sole authority. And so just like the Apocrypha, um, when I took this text and canon class at Multnomah, the extended version, I was required for a project to read um, the apocryphal books, and there was some stuff that I thought was super great, some stuff that, that I thought was, was really helpful and encouraged me, and then there was some also, also some stuff that I was like, uh, that's not quite right. And so um, just like any other book, if, if, as long as it aligns with Scripture, these books are helpful. Also, they, they provide us with valuable historical information. I mentioned a couple books, First and Second Maccabees. They, they give great historical accounts of uh, the Jewish people between the, the time of the Testaments, and they, they're helpful for seeing what was going on. And they also show us how Jews were interpreting Scripture and how they were applying it. And lastly, they also act, as we saw last week, to a witness of the true books of the Old Testament or the Hebrew Bible. Um, and they, they show us, they'll, they'll list out, they'll quote from, they'll allude to books which we should consider Scripture. So that's all I have on the Apocrypha. Does anyone have any questions uh, based on that? That was my opinion. This is going to be the opinion of, of most Protestants. Um, but obviously we have a bunch of, of people who um, claim to be Christians and who also believe these, 
these to be scripture. And so um, this is something that I, that I do think is a big deal. It was something that, that the Protestant um, reformers made a big deal of, um, but there are some who do not agree. Frank, did you have a question? Um, not that come to mind off, off the top of my head. Um, I think a lot of, uh, again, a, a, a lot of the, the tradition in the Catholic Church, they're going to appeal to some of these things. Um, but yeah, I can't think of anything off the top of my head that I'm like, oh, this would, um, this would be, be direct correlation. Any other questions before we move on to the formation of the Greek Bible? All right, great. So, we're going to be talking now about the New Testament, or what I will be often referring to as the Greek Bible. If you heard last week, um, I, I said that I like to call the Old Testament the Hebrew Bible because the, the term "old" it kind of it, it implies this secondary nature to it, that it's it's not as good as what's new. It's it's somehow less than. It's been replaced, and so um, I like to refer to the Old Testament as the Hebrew Bible um, or the Tanakh. That uh, acronym that we had for it. And so with the New Testament, we're going to be referring to it as the Greek Bible because just like Hebrew was the language of the Hebrew Bible, Greek is the language of the Greek Bible. Uh, the Greek Bible is made up of 27 books. They're counted and ordered in the, in the same way as our New Testament is, so it's not any different. Um, the, the Hebrew Bible, obviously, we did have different ordering um, and they counted the book differently, but that's not, not uh, the case with the New Testament. All right, and so now let's talk about the Greek language for a little bit. Uh, the, the New Testament was written entirely in Koine Greek, um, which we'll learn stands for, it means common Greek. It's the earliest Indo-European language, and in fact, the order and some of the letter names are similar to that of Hebrew. And so Hebrew begins with Aleph, Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, and Greek begins with Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta. Um, and you might see there, Alpha, beta, alphabet. Cool. Um, and so I thought that we, we went through the, the Hebrew alphabet last week. I th last week I thought we'd go through the Greek one this week. Uh, Hebrew doesn't have uppercase and lowercase. Greek does. And so the top you have the uppercase, the bottom you have the lowercase. And Greek reads left to right, unlike Hebrew, which reads right to left. So starting in the top, I'll read the letter and you repeat after me. Alpha, beta, beta. Gamma, gamma, delta, delta. epsilon, epsilon. Zeta. zeta, eta, eta. Theta. Theta. theta, iota, iota. Kappa. kappa, lambda, lambda. Mu. mu, down with that, the, the N-looking one there, nu, nu. xi, omicron, P, Rho, Sigma, Tau, Upsilon, Phi, Xi, Psi, PSM, Psi, and Omega. All right, there we go. Greek alphabet. You might be wondering, some of the pronunciation sounds different. If you um, are doing math today, you use pi. Um, for the New Testament Greek, it would be pronounced P. 
and there's some other some other differences there. Really, the only time I, I hear Greek the Greek alphabet today is with like fraternities or sororities or math, and so uh, they pronounce it wrong. <laughs> um, so more on the Greek language. Uh, Alexander the Great, he was an evangelist for everything Greek. He, uh, they, they call it, he Hellenized the whole Western world. And so from 330 B.C. to 330 A.D., he was spreading all things Greek, and the language of Greek became the lingua franca. It became the, the international trade language of the entire Western world at that point. And so I mentioned earlier, it w- spread in this form called Koine Greek. Koine is the, the term for common in Greek. And this is actually important because the fact that Greek became the international train language is significant because it gave the Western world a single common language through which the gospel could be preached and understood. It seems that in God's providence, he was preparing the world for the spread of the gospel by by giving it one language that that everyone was speaking. Um, The New Testament was written in this and and preaching was going to be conducted in this. Everyone could understand uh, the gospel. Furthermore, we'll talk about this a little, little next session when we talk about translations and how this should impact the way we translate today. God chose to reveal himself in the common language of the day in a way that was accessible and understandable to everyone, whether poor or rich, educated or not. And so um, some people bring that up and, and say, how should that affect the way we translate today? Should we be translating more in common ways that everyone can understand? All right, the autographs. Uh, I explained them a little bit earlier, but the autographs are the very first writings of any biblical text. They're the original text produced by the author. They're not to be confused with manuscripts. A manuscript is a handmade copy of an existing text, though it is often used currently to refer to any copy. Um, Just as with the Hebrew Bible, we don't have any autographs of the Greek New Testament. However, we're going to see that as, as the New Testament was being written, the authors believed that they were writing Scripture. Um, contrary to popular belief, it was not some men in church councils hundreds of years later who decided which books were Scripture. These books were immediately acknowledged by the, apost- uh, by the apostles and authors of the New Testament as Scripture. So we'll talk about this more later. Uh, but I wanted to turn to three key passages that um, kind of expand on this idea. 1 Timothy 5.17, this is Paul writing, he says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and the worker deserves his wages. Okay, what does this have to do with anything? Well, Paul's making the case for why pastors should be paid, and he quotes from scripture. He introduces it with the the customary introduction for a quote from the Hebrew Bible. He says, For the scripture says, Do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 25.4. And then, this is what gets important, the red there, he quotes from Luke, the Gospel of Luke. This is a a quote from Luke's Gospel. It's unique to uh, Luke's Gospel. And Paul is thus equating Deuteronomy, the Hebrew Bible, and Luke's writing, uh, he's equating it. He's, he's saying they're both Scripture. He quotes them as Scripture. And this is super important because we see that at this point, we already have circulation of at least the Gospel of Luke, likely some other Gospels, and they're already being used as Scripture. 
Next, we have 2 Peter 3.16. Peter writing says, Paul writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in, them, uh, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Uh, first off, this is encouraging for us because even Peter had a hard time understanding some of what Paul is writing, so we can, we can have a hard time as well. Um, but what's significant is that he talks about Paul's writings, Paul's letters, and says that ignorant people distort them as they do the other scriptures. And so the Greek here makes it very clear that Peter is putting them on the same level. So there's two words for other in Greek. So if I was eating an apple and I wanted another apple, I would say give me another one. I would use this word in Greek and you would give me another apple. Um, if I was eating an apple and I wanted another type of fruit, I could say, in, using another word, give me another another one, and you would give me a, di- a banana or a different type of fruit. Paul uses the first one. It's another of the same category, and so he equates them, again, saying that, that Paul's writings are on the same level as the other scriptures. Here, he, he likely has in mind the entire Hebrew Bible. This is very significant. Next, in 1 Thessalonians 1.13, Paul says, And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God from us, you accepted it, you accepted it not as human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. And so Paul recognizes his own work as the word of God. And we already see that, that Peter does as well, and so we can conclude that, that we have people at this time, after Paul has written it, immediately after he's written it, where he says this is the word of God. He equates it to Scripture itself. And so this goes to show that while the ink was still wet, the New Testament authors knew that this was not regular writing, but instead knew that what they had just written was the word of God. So, moving on to the manuscripts of the Greek Bible. These are going to be copies, handwritten copies of the autographs. Um, the manuscripts of the Greek Bible were copied quickly and in a number of places. There were specific production centers where this copying occurred. So, when we look kind of at the copying of the New Testament, we're going to see five main copying centers in Rome, Carthage, which is in uh, northern Africa, Byzantium, which is modern-day Istanbul, and Caesarea on the coast of Israel, and Alexandria in Egypt. These different copying centers developed into four major text families, is what we call them, and so I'll explain that in a second. Um, We have the Western family, which is Rome and Carthage. If you look on a map, which I have uh, on the next slide, they're very close together. Then we have... uh, Byzantine family, Caesarean family, and the Alexandrian family. And so when I'm talking about the, the manuscripts families, um, they, they become important because the manuscripts of the Greek Bible were, were copied much differently than that of the Hebrew Bible. If you weren't here last week, spent some time talking about this group of scribes who meticulously copied the Hebrew Bible. They, they were so copious in every little detail, counting everything, making sure that what they had was perfectly copied. Um, and so they were really about quality over quantity, whereas it was the opposite with the New Testament. They were just about quantity and, and just copying all these manuscripts. And so we have these different places, um, which I will show you right here. 
where manuscripts are being copied, and they start to develop some similarities. So, um, for instance, if we have a manuscript that has been copied up in Byzantium, and a certain scribe made an error while he was copying it. Um, not intentional, likely. If you think about if you're handwriting something and you write the same word twice or you leave out a word, he, he leaves out a word. Well, he then passes on this manuscript to more scribes in Byzantium, and they're going to copy from his manuscript, and they're going to include his error, and they're likely going to make some errors of their own. And so then this keeps getting passed on, and soon you develop... Uh, families of manuscripts where manuscripts in Byzantium might all kind of be missing this one word from the text, whereas in Rome, they're not because that scribe didn't make that mistake. Um, and so this is what, what we're talking about when we're talking about manuscript families. Um, and, and this is what we'll see as we look later in this lesson about the, the process of textual criticism, which I'll explain, and, and how we can correct these errors and go back and um, figure out what the original text said. So these are the, the four manuscript centers right there, Roman, Carthage, Byzantium, Caesarea, and Alexandria. So Islam also had a major impact on the formation of the Greek Bible, and this was through the destruction of these manuscript centers. And so here, again, we have all our manuscript copying centers. Well, in 638, the Muslims destroyed Caesarea. They, destroyed, they overtook it, and they destroyed the manuscript center that we had there. Then two years later, in 640, in Alexandria, they did the same thing. Um, there is a, a famous library of Alexandria. This was where we had massive works, such as, as Origins, Hexapla, that I mentioned, this, this huge uh, witness to the, the text of the Hebrew Bible. It was destroyed there, unfortunately. Um, and then 50 years later, in Carthage, it's overtaken and destroyed. And so now we have two manuscript copying centers left. And we'll see that uh, about 750 years later in Byzantium, they overtake that as well and destroy it. So for 700 years, there were manuscripts being copied in Byzant Byzantium. Rome was untouched. It was never destroyed. But in the fourth century, I mentioned that there was this translation called the Vulgate into Latin, and this was the official translation of the Roman Catholic Church. They were only using the Latin translation, so all the manuscripts they were copying were Latin. They weren't copying Greek anymore. So for 700 years, effectively, we have only manuscripts being copied in one place. And so as we gather manuscripts today, the majority of our manuscripts, um, not uh, the majority, are, are from Byzantium. They're going to be uh, the, of the Byzantine family. And I'll talk about some of the, um, the cons to this a little later. Before we take a break, I want to talk about one last person. His name's Erasmus. He lived from 1469 to 1536. And he was an influential scholar he ended up putting together the very first Greek Bible. He used a few very late Byzantine family manuscripts, so from Byzantium, where all that production had been going on for 700 years after the other centers had been overtaken. He uses a few, like, a, like six, half a dozen manuscripts from, from there, and he produces a Greek New Testament. There's a photo of him from an iPhone at the time. Um, so at the time, there was a race between scholars to be the first to get out a printed Greek New Testament. The, uh, the, the Gutenberg printing press had, 
had been invented, and so now we're trying to get all these um, all these books printed, and we can get them distributed to a bunch of different people. So there was a rush to get the first Greek New Testament out. So in his haste, he he kind of took some shortcuts and did some things a little um, a little rushed and. I mentioned he only had half a dozen manuscripts. Well, when he got to the book of Revelation, essentially the last page of Revelation, he realized, I don't have these verses in Greek. They're missing. And so rather than, than trying to find a Greek manuscript, he, he took the Latin Vulgate, the Latin translation, and he back-translated it into Greek and called it good, sent it to the printing press. Um, eventually, he was kind of ashamed of this and went back and found some better manuscripts and edited it. But this is what we originally had. And so... This becomes important because this first printed edition of the New Testament, really, it, uh, we have a later edition being released about 100 years later by a guy named Beza, then 25 years later, 30 years later, uh, by two brothers named the El- uh, Elzevirs. And they were using this base text. They had added some footnotes, essentially, but they kept the text the same. And this edition became the standardized Greek text that we used for centuries in all our translations of the Bible. Um, It became known as the Textus Receptus. That might be a familiar term to some of you people. Um, Essentially, the, the Textus Receptus, for some people, is a superior Greek text. Uh, there's, there's kind of this cult of people who believe that this is the only Greek text we should ever use. This is handed directly from, from God. Um, and, and really, we'll see that, that this is mis, misguided. Um, this was the, the Greek text used to translate the King James Version for the New Testament. And at the time, 400 years ago, it was a, it was a good Greek New Testament. But now we have so many more manuscripts. We have become so advanced that... Um, 99% of scholars would say we, we wouldn't even use the Textus Receptus because we have so, so many better manuscripts and all these things. Um, it's going to be relying off a handful of manuscripts that are super late. Why wouldn't we use all these other manuscripts that were from hundreds of years earlier? And we're going to be talking about that a little more, but um, that's one of the reasons that the KJV really is outdated not just because of its language, but because of the, the texts it's working from. We're, we've come so far in 400 years that to use the KJV, you're, you're going to be using a text that um, I believe is the Word of God, but will have some manuscript errors that we now have, have solved easily. Um, but this was the text, like I said, used for the KJV. It was also used for other translations um, like the Geneva Bible, 1560, and then the Luther Bible, Martin Luther's translation in 1534. He used uh, the text from Erasmus. And so this became really influential just in Greek studies and in um, the, the history of the Greek New Testament. And um, it did push scholars for, for a while away from really um, looking at all the manuscripts because this had been accepted as the first one. This is the only one we can use. And it wasn't until a few hundred years later where scholars really said, okay, let's look back. Let's get more manuscripts. Let's, let's create a text that is, is pure. Um, and so that's what we'll be looking at next as we look at the process of text criticism. But real quick, let's take a five-minute break and then come back. Um, I don't have as many cool 
artifacts this week, but I do have a couple modern Greek New Testaments up here if you're interested in looking at those, and then I have a, a Bible with the Apocrypha if you wanted to look at those. So, yep, see you back in five minutes. So I've mentioned this a couple times already. I've mentioned uh, the phrase textual criticism. So this is a topic that is uh, super big. It's super complex. I want to try and make it as simple as possible. Um, but this is just the tip of the iceberg. But it's important to know. It's important to have a little bit of an idea of. Um, but, I, but I want to make this as understandable as possible. So if there's any questions at any point, um, just raise your hand, let me know. So, this is a definition from a scholar named Jason DeRucci. Textual criticism may be defined as the discipline of restoring the biblical author's original words by comparing and contrasting the various copies and translations of the Bible. Um, this is just some stuff that I added. In textual criticism, scholars compare all the manuscript evidence from manuscripts in the original language in Greek and Hebrew, from early translations like the Septuagint or the Vulgate, and other textual witnesses such as lectionaries and commentaries, which we'll talk about later. And after comparing and contrasting these different witnesses to the text, they then make an educated decision as to what the most likely original reading was. Through this process, we can become convinced of the reading of the original autographs. Um, I put together this basic, basic example. So here on the left, we have the autograph. It says A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L. Then we have the process of transmission, of copying the manuscripts. And now we have three manuscripts. The first one says A, B, Q, D, R, T, Z, H, L, J, K, L. And I've highlighted in red the areas where there's a difference. The second one I, I won't read, but you can see there's some differences now. So what do we do when we have manuscripts which have differences? Well, we apply the process of textual criticism, and then we're going to come out with what is called uh, the critical text or the eclectic text is another word. And so we compare, we look at the very first letter, A. All of them have A, so we know that's good. We look at the next letter, B, Y, B. Okay, the only one of them has Y, two of them ha have B. So we're going to go with B as the original reading. Look at the second one. The first one has Q, but then there's C, C. And so we're going to say C is the original reading. We do that process for all of the words, all the verses, and we can construct what was the original manuscript based off all of these different witnesses. Now, you see there G in the critical text has a footnote because all of the manuscripts disagree as to what the original word was. We can see, because we have the autograph there, that it was G. So they, there's some other factors that might go into making what we believe is the most reliable manuscript that we have. Maybe it's the oldest or in general the most reliable. But then they're going to have a footnote and say some manuscripts, MSS is the abbreviation for manuscript, some manuscripts have Z, some have M. Um, just a side note, most people don't read their footnotes in their Bible, but they're important because they're going to tell you um, some people, Luke Burns, read too much of them and <laughs> d distra uh, distracts them. But uh, so whether you have a study Bible or not, you're going to have footnotes put there by the translators 
which will alert you of things like this. So you're going to have, um, for example, a footnote that says some Greek manuscripts add this or some say this, or you might have a note that um, the, the committee of translation decides to translate it one way, but there was kind of debate over it, and so they put another translation down in the footnotes, um, or you might have a reference to a direct quote. But they're important. Um, I've heard some scholars say that, that the only reason they put them there is to make themselves feel better because they know no one reads them. But they're important to read because they alert you of these things and, and they show you when there's situations like this going on. Um, so read your footnotes. Uh, but d does that make sense to everyone, the, the process here? So when we're doing this with the, the New Testament or the Hebrew Bible, we're going to have dozens of, or, or more manuscripts to be working from. And so scholars are going to go through and compare all of them. And they're going to say what was the most likely reading. They're, they're going to apply these different principles. Um, and, and in this process, there's some, some rules, essentially, that scholars are going to follow. Like they're going to they're gonna, depend more on the older manuscripts because it's closer to the time that it was originally written or um, they're going to go with with certain readings or, or ones that have more manuscript support. And so this it's quite complex, but we have scholars who are so smart and able to do this that, um, as we'll see here, really, we, we don't even need to worry about this. Um, through the process of textual criticism, we can reconstruct the autographs, the original text, with only a small degree of uncertainty. I have a quote here from um, a couple of scholars. They say, the net result is that there is near unanimous agreement among biblical scholars that the Greek text used to translate our contemporary English versions is very close to the original text of the New Testament. In the small percentage of passages that remain uncertain, one can be sure that the original is either in the text or is the alternative found in the footnote. It's Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss. Um, scholarship shows that of the entirety of the New Testament, less than one percent of the text is truly in question. Um, I believe the number is like one-tenth of a percent is, is really what is kind of in question. And so out of the entire Greek Bible, there, there's hardly any variance that, that really we aren't sure of what was the original reading. And for the Hebrew Bible, it's, it's close to the same thing. At first, uh, the process of textual criticism, I've, as I've explained it, it might sound unsettling, like, oh, there, there's errors, there's things that, that are there things that I, I don't know about, that I, that I should be taught about, or are the, the translators hiding stuff from me? Um, this really should increase our trust in the Bible, though, because through this process, we seek to discover the original text of Scripture that God inspired, and through this process again, we may be convinced of the accuracy of the text we have today. Is the text of our Hebrew and Greek Bibles today accurate? The answer is a resounding yes. Through textual criticism, we, be, we may become convinced of this, and we may become even more sure that the Bible we hold in our hands is the Word of God. Another note is, is your faith is not hanging in the balance over any text-critical issue. When we deal with these issues, 99% of the time it's something extremely minor, like a spelling mistake or a missing letter or word. There's no major text-critical issue that changes any major doctrine or theological position. Um, so, for instance, if I was to walk over to this Greek Bible here and open the first page, 
to the, the Gospel of Matthew, there's going to be a bunch of footnotes for these textual critical decisions, and they're going to be talking about different things. But the, the first one I see is going to be about a name. Did they, uh, is the name Asa or Asaph? Did they forget one letter at the end of a name? And so, yeah, it'd be nice to know what, whether his name is Asa or Asaph, but does that change your faith? Is your faith shook if it's, if it's one of the, no, it's not. And so for most of these decisions, it's going to be something extremely minor. And through this process, we can become so convinced um, that even, even liberal scholars, they're, they're going to use that Greek Testament and not even, and really question that they're not going to even do a lot. Well, no, this isn't right. They're going to accept, oh, this is, okay, we have an accurate Greek text uh, where they're going to differ is on the interpretation of that Greek text. Um, as I did mention, there's, there's kind of some rules of textual criticism, some, some boundaries that they follow just for time's sake. I don't want to walk through all of them, but um, I'll include them in the notes that I, that I hand out at the very end. Um, and they might even be in your notes right now. Uh, I think they are. Um, but I wanted to move on to the different types of manuscripts that we have. And so the oldest manuscripts we have are papyri. If you were here last week, I had this table with some cool artifacts, and I had a piece of papyri, um, which is reed paper, uh, reed, a reed plant that is smashed and weaved into paper and then is, is written on. And uh, this was one of the, the main kind of resources for writing on the, the New Testament. Um, Obviously, it doesn't hold up well in climates that are, are wet or where there's a lot of moisture. And so the only place where we really have these is from Alexandria in Egypt. But a lot of these are going to be the oldest manuscripts. Um, here's a picture. This is the oldest fragment that we have. It's, it's a, a, is a fragment. Um, it's of John, like four verses from John 8. There's uh, some on each side. And it's from 94 A.D., um, that's the, the Gospel of John is, is, was one of the last books written. People think generally written around 90 A.D. And so this wouldn't have been the autograph, the original one, but this is a very early manuscript of it. And so that's encouraging when we look back and the few verses we see, oh, they're similar to, they're the same as what we have um, now. So anyway, moving on. Um, oh, before I move on, um, I have some, some counts of the manuscripts that I, that I got from, from a uh, website. As of 2016, we have 131 uh, papyri manuscripts and fragments. Next, these are going to be the oldest complete manuscripts. They're called unseals or majuscules. They're written in all capital letters. They're from the 4th and the 5th century. They're very old. They serve as a very important witness to the New Testament text. Um, this might mean nothing to you. You might have heard these before. These are going to be the, the most kind of important unseals. We have these complete uh, texts. So Codex Sinaiticus, again, a codex is, is just a book. Codex Sinaiticus, um, abbreviated with the Hebrew letter Aleph, was from the 4th century, and it contains the entire Septuagint, the entire translation of the Bible, the Old Testament in Greek, and it contains the entire New Testament. So we have this manuscript from the 4th century, just a few hundred years after the New Testament was finished, and it includes all of the Bible. Um, this was a fantastic find. This is, is really one of the um, most important manuscripts we have. Then Codex Alexandrinus, um, abbreviated A, from the 5th century. It has uh, 
the entire Septuagint and almost all of the New Testament, there was some damage. And then same with uh, Vaticanus, um, abbreviated B from the 4th century. It's damaged in some places, but has both the Septuagint and the New Testament written in. Um, this is what it would look like written in all capital letters and no spaces between the letters. So have fun reading that. Um, but we have 323 of these, and, and most of these are very high quality, and they're going to be super important as we piece together the, the text. Next, we have minuscules, or they're referred to as cursives. Uh, they're later manuscripts which were written in lowercase and cursive. So if you're looking at a manuscript and it's written in all capital letters, that would be the last one, and it's going to be older. This is going to be um, later manuscripts, but we have a lot of them. We have um, so many of them. Here's what, what one would look like written in a lower, lowercase cursive. We have 2,932 of these manuscripts. We have a bunch of them. Next, we have lectionaries, and a lectionary is going to be uh, an ancient reading portion from Scripture that was used in a, in a church liturgy. So um, it's kind of be like if we printed Scripture in the bulletin, it's like they would have their lectionaries with their Scripture reading for, for the week. Uh, and they're used in churches, and we have a lot of copies of these, and this is going to be, they're not going to usually contain entire books or anything, but they're going to be verses here and there that we can piece together verses Here's what one of those would look like. It might have some artistic elements to it. We have 2,463 of these as of July of 2016. Uh, another major source for manuscripts comes from early translations of the Greek Bible. And so um, it was translated into a bunch of different languages like Syriac uh, around 430 A.D., into Coptic, which is Coptic, which is Egypt, um, in the third and fourth century, Arme Ar Armenian, Armenian, not Armenian. Um, it's a different theology thing <laughs> uh, from the fourth century, and then Georgian from the fifth century, Ethiopic from uh, the fifth and sixth century, and then the Latin Vulgate from the fourth century. So we have a bunch of early translations, and we have tens of thousands of manuscripts. Of these, in fact, in Latin alone, we have over ten thousand manuscripts of the the New Testament, which is just unreal. And so, obviously, it's not as as great as a Greek manuscript, but it's still helpful for looking at what they were translating from um, and comparing it with the the manuscripts of Greek that we have. And then the final major source is going to be the early church fathers. So the early uh, theologians and, and pastors of the early church, we have tons of copies of their work, and so they might have sermons or commentaries on the biblical text or letters that they wrote where they include scripture. In fact, um, when, we, when we look back at all the church fathers, they wrote so prolifically that if we did not have a single Greek manuscript, we would be able to put together the entire uh, Greek Bible, just from how much they quote it. It'd be like if we didn't have a single Bible in here and we walked into Gary's office and um, just looked at all his commentaries, we could piece together the entire Bible by getting scripture from his commentaries. And that's what it's like with the church fathers. We have uh, tens of thousands of quotes from them. I, I think I even heard that there was a, a million, over a million quotes from the church fathers that we have of scripture. And so this is super important when we're piecing back together the, the New Testament. We have all these different witnesses 
um, Erasmus, who I mentioned earlier, he had six manuscripts that he was working from. Today, we have Greek manuscripts. Uh, we have the papyri, the magischools, the minuscules. We have lectionaries. We have the early translations. We have the church fathers. And this is what we're going to put together to um, create what we call an eclectic text. So that's what, um, what I have right here. The one on the left, that's, this is the Greek New Testament, the fifth edition. Um, what I have to buy next semester for Greek. And it's going to be a combination. Uh, they're going to use the process of text, textual criticism to create the most original Greek text. They're going to have the most accurate Greek text, and they're drawing from all these other sources. The bottom line, I want to, to give you guys, I've given you a lot of information about the text and all these different manuscripts and people. What is the bottom line? So you have the Greek Bible, and now we have all these different witnesses to the text of the Greek Bible. We have over 5,000 um, actually, I have the, we have the number here as of, as of two years ago. We have 5,849 Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. Papyri, unseals, minuscules, lectionaries. Then we have all these early translations, the Peshitta, Coptic, Armenian, Georgian, Ethiopic, Latin. Latin alone, there's over 10,000 manuscripts. Then we have the church fathers with hundreds of thousands of quotes. This is what we are using when we are piecing back together the text of the Greek Bible. So the bottom line is there is no way, there's no way that anyone could have hijacked the, the text of the Greek Bible in order to get it to read the way they wanted. This is a common argument. In fact, I was on Twitter or something uh, or, or Facebook and, and saw this just yesterday. Oh, the Bible was, was edited by people to fit their political agendas. There we have all these different manuscript sites, as we saw on the map. We have Rome, Carthage, Byzantium, Caesarea, and Alexandria over hundreds and hundreds of years producing these manuscripts. We have thousands and thousands and thousands of witnesses to the text. There's no way that one person or one group of people could have hijacked it and gotten it to read the way they wanted to. And this is uh, the premise behind Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code, that there was this elite group of people who they kind of hijacked the church and got things to read and to fit their doctrines. Um, this is just, it's, it's baloney. There's, there's no way that this could have happened. It's just simply, it's simply impossible for someone to have changed the wording of the text or the books through some church council or private conspiracy. We have different manuscript centers, centuries apart, thousands of witnesses. No one could have possibly done that. Um, and I, I want to emphasize that because this is where a lot of people, they jump in and say, oh, yeah, it was created by men or it was, it was edited over and over. This is just impossible with all the, the manuscript evidence we have. Another important note is um, we have these classic books by, um, by philosophers or, or Greek Ro Roman emp emperors, and um, today they're not even questioned whether these texts are, are accurate, and we have like a handful of manuscripts of them from hundreds of years after they were written, and then somehow the, the general public just says, oh yeah, that's accurate. We don't even have to question it. And then we have the New Testament, and we have thousands of manuscripts from just decades 
in some cases after they were written and we have people all over the place saying, oh no, it can't be accurate, it was changed. Um, and so we have kind of this double standard being applied with people who are willing to accept these other ancient writings that there's much less evidence for and we have this and it, it really just blows all their arguments out of the water because we have so much um, to testify that the, the Greek text we have is accurate. So, um, I've talked all about the text of the Greek New Testament. Now I want to move on a little bit to the, the books, the canon, so the, the list of books of the Greek New Testament, um, and, and different um, views on the formation of the New Testament canon. So there's no, uh, there is apocrypha for the Greek New Testament, but no one believes that those should be Scripture. Um, all Christians believe that there is 27 books in the New Testament. This has always been the case. And so no one disputes what, um, what books should be there today, but how did, the, how did they come about? Um, there's different views. I'm going to walk through several and then give what I believe to be the most convincing and the most accurate view. Um, so starting with the Roman Catholic view, they believe that the apostles had divinely sanctioned authority for all matters of faith and doctrine. The popes and the magisterium, which is the ruling authority, are invested with the same authority as the original apostles through apostolic secession. And so it is the church who chooses the right canon, the right list of books. Therefore, it makes no difference what century this is determined. Once the magisterium, the ruling authority, decides, it is authoritative, it's fixed, it's infallible, and it's binding. Historically, this, was made, this decision was made in 1546 at the Council of Trent, which I included earlier, where they decided um, these are the books that are in Scripture, the 39 books of the Old Testament, 27 of the New, but then they also added 15 from the Apocrypha, or what they call the Deuterocanonical books. Um, I don't believe this view is scriptural, and, and most people don't. This is going to rely a lot on tradition, and this is going to say that, yes, it is ultimately uh, a council that is going to make this decision. The liberal view would be something along these lines. The books that are in the Bible were written by ancient men, shaping and reflecting the beliefs of their day. Their origins was entirely human. It wasn't inspired. It wasn't from God. Therefore, the selection of books which came to be regarded by various communities of belief, whether Catholic or Orthodox or Protestant or Jewish, was also done by humans, usually for self-authenticating political purposes. Thus, the idea of a canon is artificial and is entirely arbitrary. It's just, uh, it's just out of nowhere and has no foundation. A canon is entirely a human construct which people use to endorse their preferenced beliefs. Um, obviously, I don't think anyone is going to be Holding to that view, this is going to be a very liberal view, viewing the Bible as a man-made work. God, it's not God's word, it's just the ideas of men. Next, this is uh, the traditional Protestant and fundamentalist view. And I bet if I was to take a poll, this would be kind of what most people have grown up hearing. And um, I do think there's a couple problems with it, and I want to point those out. So it's going to start with God inspired the inerrant books of the Bible. I don't have a problem with. Um, the church then recognized these as God's word immediately. The only disagreement with our current books were the result of people holding to false or mistaken views. Um, and this is where, where I start to question it. The canon is reconfirmed to us today by a criteria of canonicity. Who, who has heard of that? There, there's kind of this criteria of canonicity. There's this criteria that people used to 
um, come up with which books should be scripture. I'm sure, sure this has been, been heard of. Um, the reason I, I don't like that is because most of them are, are entirely modern concepts, and, and the criteria is going to be ambiguous, subjective, or, or just plain wrong. And so I wanted to walk through um, what might be held to as, as criteria for determining canonicity. This is actually from a scholar named Norm Geisler. Um, this is what he says in, in the 1960s this book was written. Scripture needs to, one, come with the authority of God. That's ambiguous and subjective. I don't know what that means. What does it mean for something to come with the authority of God? Two, it needs to be written by a prophet or an apostle. Well, that's just factually untrue because you have the book of Ruth or the book of Esther or the book of uh, Luke or Hebrews. wasn't written by an apostle or prophet, yet we counted it as scripture. So that, that one's not right. Not, not right. Three, tell the truth about God. Well, I've already told you all today about the books I have and the, the books out there that they tell the truth about God, but they shouldn't be considered scripture. And so whether that's the Apocrypha or that's some book on my bookshelf, that doesn't make it scripture just because it tells the truth about God. Four, come with the power of God. Again, it's ambiguous and subjective. I don't know what it means to come with the power of God. And then five, be accepted by the people of God. Well, that's a circular argument. Begs the question, which books should be accepted by the people of God? The books that were accepted by the people of God. It's a circular argument. And so um, with these criteria of canonicity, there's going to be a lot of things that um, just don't make sense or are ambiguous or subjective. And so... Um, I don't think this is really the right way to, to talk about it. Modernized Protestant view. Um, this is going to be a little different. It's going to say that, that God inspired the New Testament authors to write books to establish the doctrine of the early church. There was then a selection process which determined the list of canonical books, and it was done by church councils of the 3rd to 5th century. Since the councils themselves possess no ultimate authority, and who says their decisions were even correct? The question of canon must remain an open one. Um, most proponents of this view might not say this, but, but really, at least in theory, it has to be true because what about one of the lost letters of Paul? Um, we know from Scripture itself that Paul wrote other letters. We don't have them. What if we were to find it? Should we then put it in Scripture? Or uh, what about one of the books we talked about last week is mentioned in the Hebrew Bible, like the book of Jashar? If we were to find that, should we put it in the Old Testament? Well, you can't really say no if we believe that they were actually inspired and um, you kind of have, have you're, you're kind of stuck in this view because you don't want to say, yeah, we could just keep adding books, but what if we find this letter from Paul? Um, and so that's, that's why I would say that, that we shouldn't, go with this view, and um, since errant, fallible humans decided which books are inerrant, this calls into question the very notion of inerrancy. Again, you have humans deciding which books were in the Bible. So this is the last, last view. Um, this is what I believe is the best option. I believe it's the most convincing logically and based on Scripture itself. The term canon is used in different ways, leading to confusion. It appears that there are three different stages in canon development, in the development of Scripture. So in the first stage, in the first century, Scripture is being written, and it actually was God's Word. The original authors and the apostles immediately knew that it was. We saw that earlier in those verses I showed you, that they knew they were writing Scripture. 
the true identity of the text was the inspired word of God, which was known immediately by the author. So while the ink was still wet, they knew they were writing scripture. So its identity is scripture. It is canonical. The second stage, this is going to be in the second century at the latest, if not uh, then before that as well, it was recognized and used as God's word within the church, extending and equivalent to the already established Old Testament canon. In this stage, it actually functioned as scripture. So we have the books that have been written, which were immediately recognized as scripture. Now it's functioning as scripture. People are using them for their daily devotionals. They're using them in the church um, to recite and to pray. It's functioning as the word of God. Then we have the third stage. In the third and fourth century, formalized lists were compiled to indicate which books were regarded as God's word in the face of challenges. Up until this point, there was no need for such a list. They didn't need to list out which books because they already were God's word, and then they were functioning as God's word, so they didn't need to list them out. Um, I didn't mention these today. I, I thought we would be rushed for time, but there were some, some influences uh, from the Gnostics, a group of false teachers promoting false doctrine, and they're going to say we should add books to the canon. And there was a guy named Marcion who said we should take away books from the Bible. And it wasn't until we had these people coming in with these false ideas and bringing these arguments where the church felt the need to list out which books had already been accepted and functioning as Scripture. So to kind of chart it out, stage one, first century, we have these books which are recognized as God's Word immediately. It actually is God's Word as it's being given. I I want to emphasize that. The identity of it is, in fact, it's Scripture. Then we have stage two in the second century where we have a recognized core of authoritative Scripture. At this stage, it's functioning as God's Word within the church. And then stage three, third and fourth century, we have formalized lists of canonical books, of scriptural books being created. Um, This is when these books are clearly distinguished from all other books. Does that make sense? Does, does everyone see why this seems to be the most um, appealing view? Okay. Um, so that, that's it for, for the process of the formation of the canon. Um, that's it for today, actually. So hopefully, after this lesson, you all have a better idea of, one, what the Apocrypha are and several reasons why I believe we should not accept them as Scripture. Two, the process of the formation of the Greek Bible, or what we refer to as the New Testament. Three, why we can trust that we have a reliable text for the New Testament. Then lastly, how we know that we have the right books in our New Testament, how we know that they weren't just written by men and and came up with at a church council. Most importantly, I hope that learning this information has increased your faith in the Bible as God's revelation of himself to us and that you will respond with an increased sense of awe and wonder towards our amazing God. So uh, next week, there is no class. We have another event that's going to be in, uh, in Harvest. Uh, it's the final kind of um, party and celebration for Harvest kids. And so we're not going to be having class next week. I'll send out an email just to remind you. So we're going to pick up on June 10th. 
two weeks from now, and we're going to be finishing with translation theory and modern translations, talking about now that we've identified the Hebrew and Greek Bible, and we know we have the right books, and we know we have the right text, how do we go from that to the Bibles you have in front of you, to all these different translations? Is there a best translation? Is there one that we should stay away from? Um, what is the best translation theory? We're going to be talking about that, and um, I think it'll, it'll be practical, it'll be good, and I know that this is a topic that I think there's a lot of questions on because we have a lot of translations, um, and so I hope this will be informative. So again, June 10th, um, same time at 645. I hope to see you all then. If you have any questions, let me know. Thanks. Oh, Joel. Um, so, okay, so that's a good, that's a great question. Um, there are different types of, of Greek texts. Actually, these two are, are different. Um, this is a new Greek New Testament that came out last year, um, produced by, uh, Crossway, uh, and Tyndale. Um, and really the, the, the gold standard is what is, uh, called the, the UBS, the United Bible Society's Greek New Testament, um, and then there's another version, a more scholarly version called the, the Nestle Allen 28. It's the same text, just different footnotes. Um, and this is kind of accepted as the um, authoritative Greek text. So um, all your translations are going to be coming from this. Um, but then we do have other kind of traditions. So I mentioned the Textus Receptus. That's going to be another type of Greek text, which is going to be using... It's, it's not going to be eclectic, which means that it's not going to be gathering all information from all types of manuscripts. It's going to be using a select handful. Um, and so today, this is pretty much the only one. There is one um, called the majority text, and that's essentially a revision of the Textus Receptus. Um, the thing that makes it different is they're going to go with um, the text that has the, the most the most support. So the most manuscripts that support this word we're going to use. The downside to that, that might sound good at first, but the downside is we have, like I mentioned, uh, Byzantium, which was producing text for much longer. So most texts are going to fall in line with that. But as we see, there were some distinctives with the Byzantine family where uh, they were going to to add to the text a little more or scribes were, um, were going to add additional comments um, that we, we might want to look at earlier texts. So the majority text is another, another one that would be used, but really all um, major translations, NIV, ESV, NLT, CSB, um, is going to be from this one right here. And then with the Hebrew Bible, it's the same. It's going to be using um, the, the BHS, the Biblica Hebraica Stuttgardensia, which is the standard Hebrew text. They're actually in the process of putting together um, a new Hebrew text, the Biblica Hebraica Quinta, um, it probably won't be finished in my lifetime. Um, uh, well, so the Dead Sea Scrolls is going to be mostly with the, mostly with the Hebrew text, and so um, that's what this new version of the Hebrew Bible is going to be taking into consideration. It's going to be adding um, footnotes to different uh, textual variants, but the text of the Hebrew Bible is copied from um, 
the oldest complete manuscript we have, which is the Leningrad Codex, which I mentioned last week. Um, that's the base text, and then there's going to be footnotes with textual variants, um, anything from the Septuagint to the Dead Sea Scrolls to early translations, and same with the, the Greek text. We have now this eclectic Greek text, and then we have footnotes which show variant readings. Um, and they, they continue to update it as they find new Greek text. So this, uh, this is the fifth revised edition. It came out just pretty recently um, in 2014 was when they released the, the fifth edition. Um, and so they, you know, every 15, 20 years, they put out another edition that ha where they've changed the footnotes. They've added new finds. Um, but yeah, that's a great question. Any other questions before we wrap up? Can be on anything. All right. Well, thank you all for coming. I really enjoyed having you. I will see you in two weeks, June 10th. Have a good night.